C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at CloroxHealthcare.com. Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and we welcome our listeners joining us today. We would like to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Please visit the Clorox Healthcare website to learn more about their products, keeping environments safer. CloroxHealthcare.com forward slash Radio. Our guest today is Carolyn Tuomi, Vice President, Clinical Research and Regulatory with Iramax Corp. Irisept. Carolyn will be discussing surgical strategies, antibiotic stewardship, and the importance of infection prevention. It's a pleasure at this time to welcome our guest to the program. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you, Nancy. I am honored to be here today. We're honored to have you here today, and thanks so much for taking this time out of your busy schedule to join us. And Carolyn, would you like to take a moment and share your background with our listeners? Certainly. I'm one of these, um, you would almost wonder if I'm ADD when you look at my background. I, I am a nurse by training and was passionate about it, loved it, did a lot of different things, worked in critical care, did a lot of teaching, worked, um, I even served as a volunteer paramedic in the state of Virginia, loved doing that, landed in the OR, and in the OR, in the operating room, I learned a a lot of new things, and while I was there, heard a speaker, and as I heard her, I went, I want to do that, what she's doing, and she worked for industry and traveled and spoke about issues that she was passionate about, and that is, in fact, what I do today. I work for Iramax Corporation, uh, the makers of Iracept, and I I do, I wear a lot of hats for the company today, but one of my favorite things to do is to speak to groups about topics that I'm passionate about, like surgical site infection, antimicrobial stewardship, and, and things of that nature. So that's who I am. Well, we are so glad that you followed your heart and with all of your experience and are, are always putting the patients first. We thank you for that. And Carolyn, maybe you can tell us why are surgical site infections so hard to prevent? You know, the number one answer for that is they are so multifactorial. When you take into consideration the patient status as they present to a surgeon or to a hospital and need surgery, all of their health history, their previous surgeries, all of their... um, Underlying diseases, if any, if they're smokers and, and have habits of that nature, all of those things impact their surgical outcome. And then you take into consideration the procedure that needs to be done, the environment it's done in, all of the different um, things um, that need to be considered and that may occur during a procedure and how you work your way through and problem solve that. And then, of course, there's recovery time. How is the recovery? How long do they stay in the hospital? Do they go home? Do they go to an interim care stop? Do they go straight home? Do they have people at home who know how to take care of them? I mean, the problems are endless. The issues are endless. And yet we continue to be passionate about eliminating issues or dealing with issues one issue at a time in order to 
give our patients a much better outcome. Exactly, and thank you for that. And Carolyn, why is an abdominal surgery so much higher risk for infection? Well, today, there are two ways abdominal surgery happens, either an open abdominal procedure, which is getting rarer and rarer by the day. You might find it interesting that medical schools have had to plug in or, um, yeah, actually plug in being training somebody to do an open procedure because today most of what we do in that in the abdomen is minimally invasive in that we make some stab wounds, all the instruments go through those stab wounds, and there's no major incision. But the problem, the underlying issue still exists. You're working in an area area with hollow organs and solid organs, and if those hollow organs are perforated, um, like an appendix that's ruptured, or an a bowel that is perforated or has diverticulitis, then their infection rates are much higher. And of course, any time that you have an open case, your risk for infection is much higher than for a minimally invasive. In general speaking, general terms. Exactly. And, yeah. and Carolyn, why are patients released shortly after surgical procedures now, and their hospital stays a lot shorter than what we what we're used to? <laughs> so you know, I came through nursing school in a day and age when. <clears throat> Patients still got admitted preoperatively for a day or even two, and they did procedures and all, and we did um, assessments before surgery, and we helped shave and prep patients for surgery, prepare them for surgery. And today, as most people know, you show up the morning of in oh dark thirty, and you go through that in a hurry in order to get into surgery. I, you know, I would say to you, there there is a lot that's driving it. Healthcare costs are extravagant in a country where we still have um, paid, paid for pay, by payer insurance plans, unlike countries where they have um, socialized medicine. But we also have a situation where those insurers carry a big stick, and those insurers are, are big players in how long a patient can stay and, determine, and the factors that determine that, that time frame. Exactly. And uh, I know that we also, in, with the insurance, Carolyn, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the DRGs, um, they also have a lot to say in it also, don't they? Well, diagnostic-related groups are a rating system that we use in healthcare to look at, um, try and bucket procedures and look at expected outcomes and what we can expect from that. But insurers play a big role in once once clinical individuals figure that out, then insurance companies go, so, okay, if you have your total hip or total knee, you get 48 hours post-op for a knee, for example, um, based on what we know today. And it's very difficult to have a patient stay longer. I think the other thing that's important to understand is that there are procedures today for which CMS, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, um, have decided that they will no longer reimburse hospitals for readmissions, infections, and readmissions. Um, and, and that is third-party payers trying to help drive performance at the hospital level. So, for example, if you're looking at a total knee replacement or a total hip replacement, they, um, they also can say, we won't reimburse the hospital for the infection because the hospital needs to take care of that. If the hospital had done 
everything to standard and everything was perfect, we should get a perfect outcome. The problem is people aren't perfect, hospitals aren't perfect, and so perfect outcomes are difficult to come by. But it has put a lot of pressure on hospital systems and um, third-party payers as they try and do that dance of what can we expect from outcomes, what's realistic, and then how long are patients going to stay as a part of that. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for answering that and sharing that with our listeners. So, Carolyn, we know that infections are quite expensive. And who actually pays for them? Well, today, if you, if in the, in the procedures that CMS, Medicare, Medicaid, and once CMS uh, makes decisions, then all private payer um, insurer companies tend to follow suit. So, um, so they are the drivers for a lot of that insurance activity. Um, when they make those decisions, the hospital has to pick up the cost. If you have your knee done there and you go back to your original hospital, then they have to pick up the cost of that readmission and all of the work that has to follow that. Not a small cost. The cost today um, estimated in the literature for a total knee infection is between hundred and dollars and $150,000. So it's, it's not a small cost. And so hospitals and surgeons are looking for problem solvers so that their patients don't come back with an infection because it's not just that cost, but when you have a total knee and you have to come back in for, um, they, they take out parts of that, all or parts of that knee, they put in spacers, you get IV antibiotics, you go home on an IV antibiotic, your infection has to completely clear up, and then you have to start all over again, you know, getting a knee implant done. That wow. is such a burden on families and patients. If you can imagine, you thought you were going to go in, have your total knee done, you were going to be home in three days, and it would take you, you know, a couple months to recover and be back up to snuff, and you spend a couple months actually just clearing your infection. That is, right. that is a significant burden on families and patients. Absolutely. And thanks, Carolyn, yeah. for explaining that. Um, Carolyn, before we go to break, can you explain why did we start utilizing ambulatory surgery centers? Um, I think, you know, again, it's multifactorial. A lot of them began with surgeons moving their patients out of hospitals where infections are more common, where they could control the process because at the time, early days, most of them were surgeon-owned. Surgeons made decisions about the processes and things that were in place, and that drove ambulatory surgery centers. The other thing, because you don't have to fund the cost of uh, radiology for x-rays and laboratories and all those other things, because you have to do that outside an ANC, then your cost didn't have to cover, if you will, the greater good of being in a hospital. So costs are much cheaper um, in the ambulatory surgery environment. So, of course, that caught on by storm. And today, a lot of procedures, you know, people think of ambulatory surgery centers as fairly minor procedures. Patients go home the same day, relatively low risk. And that's the way it was in the beginning. What's stunning today is that total knee and total hip replacements are being done in ambulatory surgery centers, and it's moving there very quickly. So high risk, high, high um, complexity procedures have actually started their move into ambulatory surgery centers. 
they hope it's fewer infections uh, because of all of all of the factors in hospitals and infections. They hope that it's cheaper, obviously. They hope that it's faster and a better recovery, and and they see it as that. So that's how we ended up with a- ASCs today. Wonderful. And they are helpful. And yes, thanks, Carolyn, for sharing all of that with us today. Um, Actually, right now, we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, Carolyn Twomey will be discussing antibiotics, when they are useful, and the guidelines. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back after these messages from our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? washed your hands. Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for joining us today. It is a pleasure to reintroduce our guest, Carolyn Twomey, VP, Clinical Research and Regulatory with Irimax Corp. Welcome back to the program, Carolyn. Thank you, Nancy. That, the first section went so quickly. I know, right? I know the time flies here and we have so much to discuss. And I'm going to start off by asking you, why are we at the end of the antibiotic era? You know, it's interesting. I've been talking about antibiotic resistance for for years, traveling and speaking all over the U.S. And we've said this end is coming, the end is coming. I feel like Chicken Little and the sky is falling. But, um, you know, we've put out this warning and yet... um, Arjun Srinivasan from the CDC, there's a great clip on the CDC website where he's talking about it, is so right. We've really hit the end of that era. And what that means to me as a clinician is that I have patients who have infections for which there is no no weapon in my tool chest, no antibiotic weapon that I can use. And that for me is exceedingly concerning. So, you know, it's it's amazing when you learn more and more about bacteria and remember that antibiotics only treat bacterial infections and not viral infections, um, that these bacteria, these really 
small single cell organisms are outwitting us at our very game of, of antibiotics and, and tools to use to create infections. I, I think the other thing that's important to know, Nancy, is years ago, uh, especially after um, World War One, when antibiotics were were first introduced, uh, first used, uh, you know there were a lot of pharmaceutical companies that made a lot of antibiotics. And of course, I'm sure you've all heard from other speakers, making a pharmaceutical product is very, very, very costly. And what's happened in our pharmaceutical world is. More and more pharmaceutical companies have quit making antibiotics, so we don't have as many companies doing that. And, and so we have fewer and fewer new antibiotics coming to the market. They are investing, let's be honest, they are investing in drugs that are used, taken every day for the rest of a patient's life, whether it's a cancer drug or a cardiac medication, something like that they take every day. Antibiotics they take for five to ten days, and then they're done, right? And then it's, it's the value, the financial return on investment is not as significant for pharmaceutical companies. So the antimicrobial stewardship initiative that actually began during Obama's um, tenure in office in his last year in office was to set up a program to actually find a way to protect the, the antibiotics that we have and also to hopefully invest and support pharmaceutical companies in um, investigating and finding new antibiotics for us to use, new tools. Exactly. And thanks, Carolyn. Can you explain to our listeners why antibiotics are not effective to treat a cold and the flu? Well, colds and the flu are viral infections. And viral organisms are very, very different from bacteria. They have to live inside the, the body, the host, whether it's a, a family pet, a cat or a dog, or whether it's a human being. And the way that that organism functions is so different. So the way that antibiotics are designed to work, they are designed to be able to get into the cell and the bacterial cell and actually destroy the functionality of that organism. There are antivirals. And so you hear during flu season about um, medications that you can take. You have to get it quickly before your many days down the road or it does you no good. So you hear about the antivirals. There aren't many of them. There aren't many of those uh, weapons or tools out there, but they do exist for a really severe, and in this year's case, really severe flu. Exactly. And we have actually encountered in our own organization people, all of us getting the flu, not once, but twice. Well, and this year there was the warning that the new flu, so... The H1 and 3 was out first, and now now there's an H2 flu strain, excuse me, going around, and people are getting the flu twice. I think it's, the first one, it seemed to me, uh, and I'm not a physician, but it seemed to me we'd get a little better, and then we'd get sicker again. And some mm-hmm. people did that waxing and waning several times. It was the virulence of that original flu virus. It is, it's, it, when, when that is the predominant flu virus, we have more infections. We have more more issues like that. Exactly. It was just terrible, and it was terrible to hear how many um, were suffering with it. So, what, children, the loss of children, sad. Oh, okay. I know. Yeah, so terrible. And Carolyn, um, can you elaborate on using the old and previous retired antibiotics? 
So we we have so we had and uh, in, in the early days in the 1950s particularly there were a number of antibiotics like colistin that were used and they were effective but they were very um, toxic to use so very difficult on the patient sometimes had adverse events from associated with the antibiotic so it, it might get take care of your infection but it gave you other issues to deal with so we retired those as you know, I, I can remember in the 1980s, there was always a new antibiotic with a new name I'd never heard before. I mean, I could hardly turn around in the ICU and there'd be new ones. And of course, we're not in that situation today. And in fact, there's a great article that just came out where colistin is now resistant. Uh, the colistin, there are bacteria that are now resistant to colistin, is what I meant to say. So even that weapon with that toxicity pulled out of our antique um, sources, if you will, as now, now that it's been used for the last mm, three or four years, now we're seeing resistance to that antibiotic as well. You know, these bugs are amazing. They're built to survive. That's, that's their whole reason for being. And, and so the ways that they outsmart these antibiotics, it's complicated, but it's crazy amazing to watch, to watch how they do that. It must be. And that's just so sad that now that antibiotic is no longer available for a lot of the bacteria because it has become resistant. Well, it's resistant to one family group. So, you know, that just means it's not far behind. Mm-hmm. We have to watch out for uh, resistance. And resistance is more common in antibiotics than antiseptics, for example. Things like Clorox, the, the host of the show, or uh, other um, surface disinfectants or, in fact, um, disinfectants used in surgery. So, mm-hmm. Carolyn, if, if, if the hospitals do not follow the guidelines, like the one that's in place from the CDC, what happens? Uh, so that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, from a legal from a legal perspective, if a case goes to court, legally they will look to um, recommended practices, standards of care, and guidelines uh, for whatever that specialty or that issue is. So they will look to the guideline. I would say it's interesting that this guideline um, came out after a lot of great debate. And in response, it's been interesting to watch the state of Wisconsin who brought out what they consider a complementary piece, guidelines where they have differed from the CDC guidelines and they offer them side by side so that you can see them based on other science. So uh, it's interesting to watch the response this year and see, um, well, in the last year and see, see how people are responding. But in fact, the legal community looks at those standards and recommended practices, and that's what they are. They're out there as a guideline. They're not a mandate, but they're out there as a guideline based on the evidence as it exists in the medical literature today. Okay. And um, Carolyn, who has to comply with the antibiotic stewardship program? So um, uh, three, two and a half years ago, uh, the CDC, the Joint Commission, um, a, a number of organizations came out and said, after the meeting that was held during the Obama uh, last year in office, they came out and said, we have to have an antimicrobial stewardship in this program, and this is what it looks like. And so everybody, for example... The CDC doesn't have an enforcement arm. The Joint Commission 
audits hospitals, if you will, audits, not the right term, but to credential them. And so they look at implementation of strategies where CDC puts out recommendations, but they don't have any kind of an enforcement arm. And so all of these um, heavy hitters um, in, in the healthcare arena have said, we've got to have a program. It's got to be hospital-based. We've got to look at all of the antibiotics that are being used, whether they're being used in surgery or being used um, in clinical, standard clinical practice, other things, other things that patients are in for surgery, and then looking at how long were they given, was it the right antibiotic for the right bug, you know, are all the facts in place to support its use? So hospitals are going to have to have a, um, a very strong program in place. And most of the really big facilities have an antibiotic stewardship place, a program in place. Obviously, the smaller and more remote the hospitals, the slower it's been to implement that in general, in general terms. So that program is in place. And in fact, um, Everybody is working that plan. Now, as to success, I don't think anybody's been doing it long enough for somebody to say, we've looked at the data, we've looked at what happened, and yes, this is making a difference. We're not there yet. Okay. And, Carolyn, do you think that the antibiotic stewardship approach will help solve the problems that we're faced with today? Um, I think it's part of a puzzle. You know, I work I work for a company... Um, it, it, what we're seeing in the operating room is that antibiotics are being used for something called surgical irrigation. So during your surgical procedure, they're actually putting antibiotics in. Let's say you're having an open abdominal case. They're putting it in your belly to the surgical irrigation. Irrigation is used to clear the field so we can see, to get all of the particulate debris, blood cells, everything out of there and make it as clean as we can make it before we close you up. And they're putting antibiotics in there to try and do the job. But I would ask you a question, Nancy, what's the last thing a a doctor says to you when they give you a prescription? They say, take Take the whole thing. Take the entire course of the prescription? Because the antibiotics, the way they are designed to work is actually to um, develop a therapeutic level in the tissue we're talking about of concern, and it takes multiple doses over days for that to happen. In surgery, they dump it in and they suck it out. If it's in there 30 seconds, it's a long time. So we have actually come to market with, um, and this is why this is important to me, and a product that doesn't use an antibiotic and yet has remarkable results. Um, it is a, jet, a, a an FDA-cleared jet lavage product with 0.05% chlorhexidine gluconate in it. Not an antibiotic, but an antiseptic. So I would say to you that when you look at antibiotics, there, there, are, there are the programs that exist but for all of the healthcare, medical device, and pharmaceutical industry, we're also looking for new tools to bring to the table as antibiotics become uh, less and less robust in terms of the numbers of, an- of microbes that they kill. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And Carolyn, thank you so much for providing the key points related to antibiotics um, at this segment. We're going to pause for a commercial break. 
When we return, we will be discussing surgical sites and ways to prevent infections with our guest, Carolyn Twomey. Stay tuned. We will return after these messages from our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll free 1 844 4 CDF. That's 1 844 367 2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety, as well as learn about upcoming events, teleconferences, and support sessions. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 1 844 4 CDF. 1-844-367-2343 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for joining us today. It is a pleasure to reintroduce our guest, Carolyn Twomey, Vice President, Clinical Research and Regulatory with Irimax Corporation, Irisept, joining us to discuss surgical strategies. Welcome back to the program, Carolyn. Thank you. It's good to be back. (laughs) Thank you. And Carolyn, you are the specialist and the topic expert here. So can you tell us, do surgical irrigation, does it take place with every single surgical procedure? I would say virtually, at most. There are procedures in the ear where they don't always irrigate. Um, there, there are limited numbers of procedures where they don't, but it, it is a considered a routine part of a surgical procedure, yes. Okay, and can you explain more about what a jet lavage is? Sure. So if you look at what happens in an operating room, and particularly um, in orthopedic surgery where you have bone fragments and bone dust and a lot going on, um, and, of course, if you put in an implant, and I don't care if that's a cataract or a ventral hernia mesh, 
or a total joint implant, anytime you are going to leave something behind in the body that's not part of the body, your risk for infection goes up. So then, of course, we take extra measures, of course, to try and keep that infection potential down. So particularly in orthopedic surgery, um, you will see people use, looks kind of like a gun, and I don't mean that to, in an inflammatory way, but it has a handle and a trigger, and then it has a long spout or a nozzle, and fluid comes out at pressure. So it's important to understand that really high pressure, if you think about, jet, or if you think about washing um, the outside of your house with pressure irrigation or pressure washing, if you put too much pressure on, it's actually going to drive bacteria deeper into bone and tissue. So you have to be in that sweet spot. Um, the American College of Surgeons um, has, sees um, up to 15 PSI is considered low pressure and a safe place to be. Aircept, by, by, as a matter of fact, is uh, the PSI for Aircept at a maximum sustained PSI is 15 because it's manually controlled. There's no um, equipment piece um, to have with it. You control it with your hand and squeeze it. And it's, we actually, the, the device was designed to deliver that safe level of pressure. So in, in procedures like orthopedics, you see a lot more jet and pulse lavage. And one is jet in that it's continuous stream and pulse is just what it sounds like. Um, you'll see a lot of that as opposed to, for example, an open abdominal procedure where the tissues are very friable and, and, and precious and you just can't wail away on them, so a lower pressure is really important, and I think that's where Aircept is interesting. You can deliver a low pressure by determining what's happening with the squeezing of the device with your hand versus a high pressure um, where you're really squeezing the bottle hard, and again, high being 15 PSI or, or a safe pressure. That's wonderful. That makes sense. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Thanks for sharing all that with us. Carolyn, how do antiseptics differ, differ from antibiotics? Um, the way that they interface with the cell is very different, and the way that they're dosed is very different. So antibiotic dosing, as we talked about, requires multiple doses over a period of time to develop a therapeutic tissue level. So, for example, if you're going to have a knee procedure done, you want to know that that antibiotic is in those tissues around your knee before you cut, because once you cut, then it, you can't deliver it directly there anymore through your blood vessels or, or if you ingest an antibiotic. With an antiseptic, antiseptics were actually designed initially to have, they're designed to actually have a very quick kill time. They're, 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 so there's instant, which is typically alcohol. There's immediate, which is CHG. Um, there are some that then come slower behind those two. And they, they kill an organism very quickly, and their dose is, is very low in relative comparison to um, an antibiotic. So in the case of Irisep, when you irrigate, you're actually delivering an antiseptic where it works there, um, directly to where the bugs are. And it does, you don't have to develop, develop a therapeutic level for it to be effective, if that makes sense. Yes, it absolutely does. 
And thanks for sharing that information. Carolyn, how do medical devices obtain approval for use? Oh, so in the United States, it's uh, clearance through the Food and Drug Administration and there are multiple paths. There is a um, 510K path, uh, which is for medical devices. Uh, there is a, oh, there's so many paths, but the three big ones are De Novo, which is for a really unique um, design product. And then there is a combination filing which is a drug device, a, a drug biologic, combinations of things put together to be effective. There are other processes as well, but it's controlled by the FDA, and there's a very rigorous process that a company goes through to get those clearances or approvals. Okay, and that's a lot of information there. Um, one would not think that it, it takes so much to um, get approved. So thanks for sharing that, Carolyn. Uh, Carolyn, can you clarify what a biofilm is and when it would be used? So a biofilm is actually when a group of organisms, and, and you know, I would say 10 years ago, we thought it was just one organism living as a family, lots of, lots of them clumped together. Today, we know that they're actually um, very open to lots of other organisms being together. So it's a grouping together of organisms, and as they group together, they tend to function more as, you know, it takes a child, it takes a family to raise a child, well, it takes bugs to raise a biofilm. They, they, when they grow together, and they start producing something called uh, lipopolysaccharide. It's an um, alcoholic goo for the, for the sake of argument. It is a a gooey substance that actually is protective and covers that pile of organisms. These are such technical terms, pile. But as they gather together and that goo protects them from the environment, then it becomes very, very hard to, to get rid of that. And we know today that so many infections are actually biofilm in nature. And that is also part of our difficulty in dealing with some of them today because not all products work on biofilms. It's hard to dis disrupt a biofilm. It's hard to kill all the different bugs that are down inside. You think about antibiotics, and antibiotics are usually very specifically targeted to, to certain organisms where, um, where others are not. Uh, uh, you know, the antiseptics have a broad range of kill. So, um, you know, it, it's very frustrating as a clinician to know that in a really bad infected wound, uh, just any wound, uh, your child really did a number on his knees and he's got an infection on his knee. Today, we know that most of those are probably biofilm in nature. It makes it harder to get rid of. Does that okay. make sense? It certainly does. Carolyn, what would be used instead of biofilm? Well, it's not biofilm being used. It's things being used to try and eradicate or remove or treat biofilm. And there are products on the market that are trying very hard to um, develop, or there are companies that are trying very hard to develop products that will actually disrupt that biofilm enough to get some of that glue to go away and then to kill those bugs that are underneath. Because if you don't kill the bugs, they just go set up a home wherever, you know, if you, for example, you irrigated biofilm away it'll set up house somewhere down the line. So you want to be able to disrupt it, get rid of it, and kill everything that's um, 
associated with it, all the different organisms. And so manufacturers today work on devices and dressings and things that will help treat and or prevent and or uh, eradicate biofilms. And it's, I, I would say we're really at the cusp of a number of these things happening. It's a very popular topic in a lot of major medical meetings today um, as people are looking for solutions to biofilm infections. Okay. Well, thank you so much for explaining that. And Carolyn, isn't chlorexidine gluconate and probidone iodine for external use only? You know, probidone iodine is for external use only, and um, except for the the Irisept product, and and its dose is so very small compared to uh, what's on the market today for CHG products. They were all originally approved for external use only. See, chlorhexidine gluconate as well. It, that those are traditionally in the four percent, two percent, or even. Um, you know, a little bit less than 2%, the 1% range. Irisept is 0.05%. And it's pretty stunning that it's so such a low concentration. And it's the only one I know that's not cleared for that. Now, I will say, I mean, that's not, um, that is, doesn't have a warning label or external use only. I will say that... Um, you know, surgeons have the, as a part of their licensure, may take a product um, and use it other than its indications for use. So that, I mean, it's considered surgeon judgment. And in the best judgment of the surgeon, if it's what's best for the patient, he can do that. So we see a lot of off-label use of products out there today. And that's accepted by a surgeon's license only. Okay. Well, Carolyn, we thank you again for providing the in-depth information to our global listeners. At this time, we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will be reviewing the key points discussed with our guest, Carolyn Twomey, Vice President, Clinical Research and Regulatory with Iramax Corp, Iracept Division. Stay tuned, and we will return after these messages from our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate or call toll free 1 844 4CDIF. That's 1 844 367 2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? 
visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and we thank our listeners for joining us today. It is a pleasure to reintroduce our guest, Carolyn Twomey, Vice President, Clinical Research and Regulatory with Iramax Corp. Iricept, joining us to discuss surgical strategies and antibiotic stewardship. Welcome back to the program, Carolyn. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for being here today. And we know how important this uh, program is to our global listeners, and we appreciate you sharing all the information. And Carolyn, we really would like to know, are there standards of care for surgery and standards set for surgical procedures? You know, it's interesting. Um, Surgeons learn how to do a procedure um, from their mentor or mentors. And I won't say they're superstitious, but they do believe that if they do it the same way consistently every time, they're not going to have issues. You know, uh, that would be the ideal scenario. So to change a surgeon from the way he's done it always, the way I've always done things, sometimes it's a struggle. Um, I would say that there are specialties where there's a lot more change and a lot more rapid change. Orthopedics is one where you you hear somebody say at a meeting, I tried this and it worked for me. And the next thing you know, everybody's trying that to see if it works for them. So it varies a lot, but if they learn from their mentors, there certainly there are, well, technology is changing so quickly because we've also gone from primarily open procedures to primarily minimally invasive. And so that drives a lot, a lot of evolution and change in and of itself. So in terms of standards of practice in that regard, not so much. In terms of the other uh, constellation of things that revolve around that surgeon and that procedure, certainly there are, there are uh, standards and guidelines for um, antimicrobials. There are standards and guidelines for SSI where they actually weigh what's in the evidence-based literature and report whatever was best outcome. So if you're looking at, for example, the CDC surgical site infection guideline, that's what you're going to see in there is all of the evidence to support certain activities during a surgical procedure, but it doesn't tell them to hold the hemostat here and put the stitch there. It's not that technique part. It is all of the issues that surround it, timing of antibiotics before surgery, uh, whether or not they get antibiotics after surgery, what they use for irrigation, do they use antibiotic sutures or just standard sutures. You know, it's all of those issues 
that you'll find in guidelines. Okay. Well, thank you, Carolyn. And Carolyn, how can patients who are considering or have been confronted with a needed surgical procedure, how can they be more proactive and improve their outcome? You know, I think it's really important for patients to understand a lot of things. One, always bring somebody with you to an appointment, pre-op as well as post-op, pre-op, because you're not listening as well as you could be. Stress makes a difference in how we hear and interpret things. Tell them to bring a notebook and write it all down. That's my advice after both personal and professional experience. The second thing I would say is know that you have to be, you and your family member or whoever's with you, have to be a partner and involved in this. This is not something that's happening to you. You need to be a partner. You need to understand what's going to be done. You need to understand what your discharge plans are going to be like. You need to understand what kind of care post-discharge you're going to need. You need to understand all of that. And if you're somebody who reads a lot and investigates a lot, and today with the Internet, that could be all of us, um, then if you are looking at surgery and you want something to be done, you need to ask your surgeon about that. He's working for you. You are paying him. So ask him. He is the subject matter expert. That doesn't mean he knows everything or it doesn't mean that there aren't options in what's happening with you. But be a partner. And that's the most important thing you can do. Get a notebook, write everything down from every appointment. I guarantee you, you look at it and go, I don't remember him saying that. And if you can, have somebody with you because it makes a difference. Wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And Carolyn, Mm -hmm. what makes a surgeon consider a change to his or her practice? Is it how is something um, newly adopted into their practice? It's all about the evidence. So it's about clinical studies. It's about clinical trials. It's about safety data. It's about all of the things that really go into a manufacturer submitting a product to the FDA or in the case of Europe to a notified body or the EMA. Um, You know, they're... They have to amass all of this information. And then most companies, the really great companies, are company based on science. So that science continues long after the product's approved. It's just, it does, or cleared. It doesn't just stop there. They continue to learn, continue to address it, continue to build data. And so that data is available to you. Um, A customer or a surgeon, that data is available to you to be used. Um, so I would say that it, it's important to understand um, that they are a show-me-the-data kind of person. Okay, and Carolyn, how can a copy of the science be obtained for a hospital? By a hospital? Is that what you're asking? Uh-huh. By, by it, how, how do hospitals obtain copies of the science? Well, they, all they have to do is ask a company for a copy of the science. For example, I have a team... And all, all that they do, and it's a clinical theme because the FDA asks that that is a clinical-to-clinical conversation, all they have to do is call the company. In our case, you would be put with the clinical team, and they would answer all your questions, send you all the information, um, and, and we have gradients, if you will, of science. So if you just want um, an executive summary, that's great. If you're a surgeon and you want to see all of my histo slides, then I'm going to send you a final report with all the histopathology slides in there. So if that makes sense, we we base what we give out on who's asking, and then if they want more, we're glad to give them more. Great. And That's how, how are we the copies? that time. Exactly. And Carolyn, how are the copies of the published articles obtained? 
you know, today there's been a long, you know, motion of trying to get articles for free. Some of them, I would tell you, Google Scholar is the best place I know of to get articles for free. Otherwise, you end up having to pay for them, and they have gotten so expensive. I would say it's roughly $35 an article if you go on PubMed or go to any of the major journals and pull articles. So try Google Scholar first. It's always my first stop. That's wonderful to know. Thank you, Carolyn. And before we close the program today, Carolyn, do you have any closing comments you'd like to share with our global listeners? You know, we didn't talk much about European numbers. FSI and antibiotic stewardship are global issues. We are such a global community today. Bugs travel. You know, there was a new infection and it, it, it showed up in the U.S. in about a year. And prior to planes and all of the activity, and I guess we all got a taste of that with Ebola a couple of years ago, things can travel um, today so quickly throughout the world that we have to work together. It takes a village, and in this case, it's a global community to deal with these issues and to be consistent and to have good data to partner with each other and to build data that gives us the answers we need. So I would encourage everybody to do that. If you're a patient, ask. Always ask. You need to ask and understand um, what's happening in your role. And if it's not you, then have a trusted individual with you who's going to do that for you. Um, today, I can't imagine going into the hospital without a family member who's knowledgeable about healthcare standing by your side to, to be able to answer those questions. So tap the nurse down the street or the doctor that lives next door use your resources. Carolyn, where can our global listeners learn more about your product and about your organization? Um, the website for the company is Irrisept, I-R-R-I, S is in Sam, E-P-T, dot com, Irrisept.com. And it's just that simple, and there's a place there to ask for more information. Wonderful. Well, Carolyn, we thank you so much for joining us today on CDIP Spores and more global broadcasting. And we are grateful for your dedication in the healthcare, uh, healthcare and infection prevention community and for putting patients first. This is Nancy Corrala, your host, with our reminder that none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. Join us next Tuesday, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And we wish you good health and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. together.